the mastermind of the Marxist conspiracy, was what Singapore's People's Action Party government called Tan Wa Piao. Wa Piao is one of Singapore's most famous political exiles. He was elected president of the University of Singapore Students' Union in 1974. And as president, Wa Piao worked for democracy and social justice. He was successful at mobilizing his fellow students against injustice and the exploitation of workers. His outspoken and successful activism, and in particular his criticism of the PAP government's use of detention without trial, led to his arrest in November 1974 on fraudulent charges of unlawful assembly and rioting. Despite testimony from eyewitnesses that he was nowhere near the alleged riot when it happened, Wahapia was convicted and sentenced to one year's imprisonment. It was a frame-up. He was expelled from the university and worse, the PAP government then sought to call him up for military service immediately upon his release from jail. Fearing for his life if he were drafted into the military, Wapiao went into hiding and subsequently fled to the UK in 1976 where he was granted political asylum. He later went to Balliol College, Oxford to study law and has had a very successful career as a human rights lawyer specialising in asylum and refugee cases. In 1987, following Operation Spectrum, where 22 activists were detained without trial, the PAP government sought to justify the arrest by alleging that Wa Piao was the mastermind behind a fictitious Marxist conspiracy that supposedly sought to subvert the state of Singapore. No evidence has ever been produced to substantiate any of the PAP government's allegations, and Wa Piao remains in exile to this day. On the 13th of November 2019, I sat down with Wa Piao in an art gallery that was part of his London office where Wa Piao has displayed his artwork. We talked about his childhood, his time in the University of Singapore, his activism, his fraudulent conviction and subsequent flight and exile from Singapore, all the people who helped him along the way, and his reflections on Singapore's politics and political activism today. Okay, hello. So we're here with Tan Wa Piao in, uh, in his office, um, or the sort of attic above his office, in Shepherd's Bush, London. Thanks for agreeing to, the, to this interview, Wa Piao. All right, thank you very much. So uh, I thought we could begin by just talking a bit about what you're doing here in London now, you know, in exile. I think people are very curious um, not just about your past, but what does Tan Piao do today? You know, this sort of this this man that the Singapore government declared to be this evil mastermind and Marxist and whatever. You know, what who is he really, and what does he do? Right. Well, I was trained in architecture in Singapore University, and that was uh, uh, for four and a half years before I was thrown into prison, uh, speed it up, ended up exiled in London. And uh, after a while, uh, I went to Bellio to read law, became a barrister, and later switched to become a solicitor, which is uh, what I am. I've been practicing as a solicitor, uh, uh, barrister and solicitor for over uh, 25 years. Mainly dealing with personal law, personal law, dealing with human rights, dealing with criminal law and uh, all sorts of problems which people find beyond their ability to cope. And that's the services that I provide. So 
Uh, that's my professional capacity. Now I'm doing less of that work, almost uh, to the point of zero in the last two years. Although I still keep my practicing certificate and uh, serve very specific clients, which interest me. Now, as you can see in this room, I have uh, about two years ago decided to put some of my thinking in uh, <coughs> in art form, realizing that most people don't read, right. and uh, books which are published usually end up in bookshelves. So at one time, I was thinking of uh, uh, writing something about constitutional law and the abuse of the legal system in Singapore. But again, much of that has been uh, written. And one of my observations is that many of those books, even those which are, say, published by the former Solicitor General, uh, are hardly used. Uh, I mean, I'm referring to Francis Xiao's book, uh, which contains gems that can really uh, make people think about what's wrong in Singapore. So uh, over one weekend, I decided that, yeah, I can sum up the law of Singapore and the problems with it in my five uh, volumes. And that is uh, the sort of things which I spend time on. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll take photos and we'll put them on the website so people can have a look at these. But maybe you can just... Uh, tell us a little bit about this display that we're looking at. Sure. Here. Now, this display here, I have uh, uh, a book called Constitution of the Republic of Singapore. And uh, what I did was to reduce the entire constitution into, I believe, 11.5 grams. And uh, that that is the weight of the Singapore constitutions when you shred it up. Uh, and that's what you see in the display, 11.5 grams, because it means nothing as far as uh, the constitution is concerned and the reality of people's rights. Then there's a volume called Law's Companion. In uh, Law's Companion, I invoke the famous saying of Lee Kuan Yew, I will put on knuckle dusters and catch you in a caldi sack. Anybody who decides to take me on needs to put knuckle duster dusters. Lee Kuan Yew. Now, that sums up the law of today. And if we look at uh, what happens to Workers' Party, I think they would uh, very much sympathize right. <laughs> with this <laughs> approach. Right. <laughs> Yes, so and rights are all riddled uh, with bullets Bullet uh, right, run yeah. through the, the book. And that's, that's basically my thoughts about what's going on in Singapore. And uh, I still continue to take an interest, although uh, returning to Singapore is a different ball game, right. mainly because they have <coughs> they removed my citizenship. Mm -hmm. Should I ever step foot from Singapore? I was told in no uncertain terms that uh, I would go straight to prison mm -hmm. and upon serving whatever sentence. And technically, I found out I'm still under Internal Security Act. That oh, was wow. 1987. Yeah. Uh, they placed me under Internal Security Act. And uh, 
should they would put me in prison and uh, upon whatever period they feel like releasing me, I will be deported back to UK. Right. So I don't see the point. But okay. uh, yes. So how how old are you now, if I may ask? At the last count, it was forty eight. <laughs> <laughs> but chronologically, <laughs> I think I'm 68 or 69. Right, right. Uh, okay, well, you're very well preserved for 68 oh, or 69. Thank you. Uh, so actually, like, you, you haven't gone very far from your roots, really, because after all these years, um, in Singapore, as a student, you were fighting for rights. And then as a lawyer, you were fighting for, for rights, you know, human rights and migrant, uh, you know, migrant and asylum cases. And then you've got this display here talking about the law and rights. It feels like uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, a certain theme throughout your life where you're fighting for people's rights. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, that, that is the theme. And I always tell friends that, well, when we come to the end of our active professional life, uh, we might be able to live on for probably even as long, if you're lucky as long, or if you're unfortunate as long as your actual working life. And uh, instead of using the term retirement, I use the term reinvention. The irony is that uh, in the last two years, when I actively tried to reinvent myself, uh, from being a professional lawyer uh, to something else to occupy my time, the more I try, the more I reinvent, the more I return to where I was as a 24-year-old uh, because problems not just in Singapore but in various parts of Southeast Asia has not changed. I mean, recently yeah. I was in the Philippines and I was... Talking, uh, I gave a talk there to students and was talking to some uh, of the old activists and uh, it looks like they are back to where uh, they started. They tried with revolution, they tried with people's revolution, they tried with the parliamentary process and they are back to where uh, they are. And that is the uh, problem, not just in Singapore but in our part of the world. Well, you know, I, I guess that's the thing about like democracy and rights. It's a constant battle. We can never stop fighting and the pendulum swings back and forth, you know. For a few decades, the Philippines looked like they had restored democracy and then now I think circumstances have um, had the pendulum swing back towards a sort of elected dictatorship um, and, the, you know, we can never stop fighting, um, no matter when, where, how, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. So, yeah. Yes, but, but the, the, the question is uh, not just the issue of rights, mm -hmm. where it's true, like in Singapore, uh, where uh, rights continue to be uh, restricted by the, uh, uh, by the government, by the regime, but there is also a question of uh, income distribution and so on, which, uh, w w which are systemic economic problem. Yeah. And although generally Singapore is much uh, uh, richer, very, very much yeah. richer than when I was, but, but then very there unequal, is still right? yeah. the inequality, which is a problem. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, well, you know, you were talking earlier about how you uh, have sort of come back to where you were at 24. So could we maybe talk a bit about where you actually came from first? You were born in Singapore? Yes, I was born in Singapore. Okay, and, and you uh, grew up, uh, I guess the, the... I grew up in Singapore. I had my education started when the PAP came to power. So theoretically, uh, I belong to that generation uh, which should be the clone that Lee Kuan Yew wanted to see for the future of Singapore. Right. And, uh, and that, is, that was where things started to go wrong when uh, I was in the university. That was about, what, 10 years after independence, around about that time. Uh, before we went to university, we all had to apply for suitability certificates. So I right. passed that, could get into university. And fortunately, I chose to do the longest course. The choice then was either medicine or architecture. I don't think uh, medicine uh, suits my temperament. Then hmm. I chose architecture because it was seven years. Wow, seven years. Okay. But okay, so but even before that, like is there anything in your childhood that kind of hinted at that you would become this, you know, human rights activist, fighter, people, you know, standing up for the weak? Well, I uh, my family lived in Juchen. Now, mm -hmm. Juchen is an area uh the part of Juchen, Juchen has two areas as you go uh, further uh, up along Juche Place, then there is the Kurao and so on, right. where the uh, civil servants and so on uh, uh, were staying. In fact, I think Lee Kuan Yew School was somewhere in Teluk Kurao, further up. Uh, whereas my part of Juche Place is where the small hawkers, small shopkeepers, my father was a small uh, shopkeeper. So these uh, people who does not get any benefits from the state mm -hmm. and uh, they have a healthy, shall I say, uh, a healthy disbelief in the establishment. Yeah. And uh, uh, that is the kind of uh, attitude that people in Juchit uh, place had at the time, the small hawkers and so on. And they are always fighting against, say, health officers who come and raid. Right, yeah. Yeah, so, so you have that, and it's also an area of gangsters and so on. Gangsters are basically people who are poor, young people who are poor and had nothing better to do. So uh, growing yeah. up in that kind of uh, environment uh, makes you detach from the establishment. Right. And at the yeah. same time, you are skeptical. You have a healthy skepticism of whatever the establishment said. Mm. So even in my uh, uh, period, you hear uh, things like the Bukit Hosui fire, whatever the mm. truth, it doesn't matter. They would all put the blame on uh, the government right. as having set the fire. Now, these were, these were the, the attitude that makes one... Uh, feel the need to look at the truth as one gets into universities and so on. And that is when uh, I did my architecture. That was the formative year that allowed me to develop my thinking. 
Um, so why, okay, wait, before we get to university, uh, I think a lot of younger Singaporeans are going to uh, have done a double take and ask, suitability certificates? Uh, now, by the time I was growing up, that had been done away with. So what, what, what is the process for a suitability certificate? Now, I know the PAP introduced it to try and weed out people they considered unsuitable for university, right? You need to have that certificate. But what, what is the process actually of getting one? What was that like? All, all I can remember is basically involved filling in a form. And, and I think that basically you have to go through the screen check. Within, it's not an essay that you write in praise or whatever. Uh, certainly, I can't remember doing that. But it's a simple process of submitting your name and then it's whether or not uh, you fall within uh, the scope of uh, coming from questionable family background. That's right. what... Yeah, <laughs> because I mean, at the age of, uh, what, 18, you, and given the politics of Singapore at that time, unless you are from Chinese school, yeah. yes, if you are from Nanta and so on, there would be a problem because yeah. you are likely to be involved if you're from Chongqing High School with student strikes and so on, or your brother and so on. But in my case, uh, fortunately, uh, there was no problem. For, I say fortunately because in later years, if you look at the, the rubbish that they churn out in 1987, they start uh, accusing uh, some of my brothers of being... Uh, left wingers and so on, and even name them. So uh, probably at that time, uh, they were not in their uh, in their right radar. Right now, how many brothers do you have? Just uh, I have five brothers. Oh, and wow. two sisters. Two yes. sisters. Are yeah. they all uh, in Singapore still? Or yeah, yeah, they are. Uh, uh, one of them is abroad in New Zealand. Okay, but the rest are all in Singapore. Yes. Right. Um, okay, so. Uh, before before you went to university, then there was no hit. You went to an English language school, then you didn't go to a Chinese school. Uh, no, no, okay. In English. So there's no hint of you being quote unquote unsuitable. So how do you go from there to oh, in right. university okay. be, be, to becoming going this? To university, yeah. I think during during my um, secondary school and. And the pre-university, that was the time of Vietnam War. That was the time of Vietnam War. And uh, that was the time which uh, made me think a great deal about uh, what's going around in our region. I mean, that was time of uh, anti-war movement uh, in, in the West. During that period, uh, I cannot be uh, certain, yes, but uh, in later years, there were the, 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 the Paris student unrest and the revolution uh, of the gen generation at the time was something which uh, attracted my attention. Uh, because 1966, you have Cultural Revolution. So the young in the world, whether it's the East or in the West, uh, were questioning, questioning systems, questioning the relationship with authorities, questioning uh, 
the world uh, as dominated by United States. So these are these are something which you don't learn in school. You don't discuss, and and probably reading world news at that time did give me an impression that we better do something with our own lives as a young person. And Singapore's own involvement in the Vietnam War, uh, in, in not directly, of course, but in terms of providing support uh, to the US, um, allowing them, I think, to use Singapore's port and our uh, you know, naval base facilities, and providing um, or allowing American troops on, um, on leave to come to Singapore uh, was very controversial at the time. If I remember correctly. Oh yes, yeah. yes, indeed, there were uh, demonstrations at the time, but that was more uh, by the Chinese educated. There were big demonstrations in Kuala Lumpur, I remember, and uh, there were some demonstrations by Barisan uh, socialists. And when you live in a place like Juchit, where the, the in fact there was a PAP branch just across my house uh, in front of a temple and behind that uh, there was a Barisan socialist branch as well and you see graffitis on the wall some graffitis were uh, with the logo of Barisan and so on and you occasionally uh, uh, hear of incidents of people being arrested and so on usually young people when I was uh, growing up with my uh, brother, one of my brothers was uh, from uh, Chongqing High School. Now, I was aware in my uh, secondary school days that they were involved with some kind of uh, uh, boycott of classes and so on, and some people had to be on the run. So those were information which I had from my immediate surroundings. And uh, probably it's all these which build up uh, a certain perspective which I was able to take on when I went to university. Right, I see. So I was not, I was not living in a vacuum. Yeah. Where, where we are, it was a very fertile political uh, atmosphere. And in fact, behind my house was Tambling Road. And I believe there was a famous occasion where Lee Kuan Yew uh, was there uh, for some political rallies and he was knocked off or, or whatever. He was under uh, not physical attack, but uh, uh, there were struggles between the right and the left of the main political parties. Right, I see. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that, again, is hard for younger Singaporeans to imagine is just how active politically we were back in the 60s and 70s and how every day, you know, the, the, the protesting and trying to make your voice heard to government and trying to fight for a more just society was part of the everyday sort of discourse and actions. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Skepticism was the norm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that was important yeah. uh, 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 for me. So it was not a kind of uh, that you... Uh, indoctrinated in the school and you continue your mm. life mm. as someone that was pre-programmed. Mm. Juchet allows one because of the environment. And and we we are living in shop houses. 
unlike if you are living in a 10-story flat where you, you are then disconnected uh, from ah, that's ground an level. Point. And that, that right. is important. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think Tremor One, uh, you know, also talked about how the the sort of uh, dehumanizing effect of of HDB, you know, barrack style housing. But anyway, that's a different issue. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think you mentioned uh, graffiti, which is actually a very interesting thing in Singapore because that uh, the the inability of the left to protest the Vietnam War, right? Because the PAP were refusing permits and arresting them and. So any open protest was uh, would get you in trouble. So they were doing things like graffiti, True, which yes. then led the PAP to change the vandalism law in 1968 That's right. to criminalize not so much damaging property, but public communication of information and then make the punishment totally disproportionate so that you'd have, uh, was it six to eight strokes of the cane yes. plus a fine? Yes. So it's if, if you read the law, it's an incredibly... You know, over like overkill sort of law, right? Because uh, you don't actually need to damage public property, as Jolivan found out. Right. He put up that sign, and then there was no mark, no damage to the MRT train wall. Uh, but because it was public communication of information, he was guilty or found guilty of vandalism. And that all comes from this period you're describing, where the PAP are cracking down so much that you know it ends up being graffiti done in the middle of the night is one of the few ways that the left can yes, protest. Yes, and, and you, you, I knew about those crackdown not because it's published in the newspaper, but it came through the grapevines. Oh, so-and-so's son or daughter uh, disappeared because I might have gone underground or whatever. And why would a young person of my age disappear? And it must be that uh, the police were after them. Uh, and that, that it's... That, that is the norm in that area. And uh, yeah, so a, as you said, politics was very fertile uh, at that time, at least in areas uh, uh, like Juchit and similar areas. And I think also, you know, uh, well, last point and we, we can move on, but the, when we think about like Singapore's you know, sort of great growth from, you know, the whole cliche, third world to first. But really, this expansion of opportunity and income and more fairness in society and the uh, uh, lowering of inequality, the uh, high level of social welfare, this all comes out of a period in Singapore history where we have all this political contestation, where we have protests, where we have democracy, where we have people fighting for social justice. And that is what really built Singapore into, you know, by the uh, end of the 70s, into this um, high-income, uh, you know, society with, with a lot more social justice. The, the sort of Singapore that we idealize today, the, the politicians that we give credit for, right, the systems, the social welfare that all created, it all comes out of pure political contestation. And yet somehow we separate them in our history and say, oh no, you know, all the good things we have, you know, it's because there was no political contestation, which is completely ahistorical, right? If you look at the environment back then, it was, people were fighting for social justice. There, there were, and I, I, I remember very specifically, uh, I think that must be 1968 or thereabout, that was the time when they introduced the employment law and uh, I managed to pick up 
some of the publications from the opposition. I think Barisan was publishing the uh, the Plebeian, which is one of their organ uh, 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 mouthpiece, and uh, there were articles about the Employment uh, Act uh, or bill that they were introducing and why they were against it. And um, so th those are the things which interest me at the time, uh, although there wasn't uh, enough opportunity to explore f further. Yeah, I just looked it up while you were talking. Strikes were actually basically outlawed in 1967 and yes. the NTUC co-opted by the PAP state. And then 1968 was the Employment Act and Industrial Relations Act, which basically removed worker protections, which had only been introduced by the PAP and the uh, Labour Front government like uh, just a decade before. Now, that, yeah. that, that is where, when we go back, go back to the argument of that period, and I remember vividly where that, uh, the, the PAP were then arguing that Ah, we need to tighten our belts uh, for the better future. Mm. And now is the better future of yesterday. Yeah. And that's why that's why we I bring back the past yeah. to now. Yeah. And my argument now <laughs> right. is why are we still talking about saving for rainy days? Yeah. When the benefit yeah. would be enough to entitle a working person, at least a retired person, a Swiss lifestyle. Mm, and yes. I don't... Well, here is even our Swiss to this, lifestyle. Yeah. Yes. And, and <laughs> honestly, I've been talking uh, to some of the Singapore opposition. Why are they not arguing that Swiss lifestyle is now and achievable? Mm -hmm. And for me, I could argue that because I go back to my experience, to what I read in 1967, mm. that those draconian laws to curb workers' rights was for their better future. Mm. Yes. And those are the yeah. same workers who are now retired, yeah. some of whom, unfortunately, could still be working in Hawker Centre. Yes, where is that? I mean, <laughs> so for until like from 59 to about 60, no, 78, you know, the, the PAP was saying, we need to tighten our belts, national development, better future. And then they actually, in around 78, they said, you know, second industrial revolution, they said, oh, that future is here. We're a high-income country. We're going to reform our economy. And then they screwed it up so badly. We had massive recessions. Uh, you know, the manufacturing, just the investment collapsed. Foreign investment collapsed. And so by the mid-80s, they quickly pulled back and they went back to the low-wage model. And today, just a few years ago, the prime minister was saying, again, oh, we need to tighten our belts, we need to, you know, uh, if we, we need to, um, you know, if we don't tighten our belts and make ourselves affordable, then the foreign investment will go to other countries, right? And we need to eat other people's lunch, otherwise they will eat our lunch, you know. So it's become, again, it's gone back to this very uh, low-wage, low-cost uh, model of our, of our economy where somehow we're supposed to suffer for some indeterminate future, um, where things are better. Well, but the PAP has been in power 50 years, you know, where shouldn't things be? Things, they already declared things were better back in 1978 and then they screwed it up and that somehow they've successfully resold this idea that it's not their fault, that it, you know, it's, um, it's, part, it's because of circumstances beyond their control. 
you know, in which case, why do they take credit for Singapore's success? So it's all these contradictions. No, no, but, that, yeah. but then, but then, whatever. I mean, even even if we ignore uh, those mistakes that they made and so on, the fact is that we have to link the reserve that we have back to 1967. Mm. These are the fruits, basically, uh, uh, right, of people's right. labor. Yeah, I see your point. Uh, apart yeah. from from these are the fruits of the. Uh, people's uh, uh, labor. The other part, which uh, is Singapore, is the world capital for fencing. Fencing is a legal term for handling stolen goods. Really, I have uh, no we, idea. We, we are the center for handling stolen goods. If you look at the economy of Indonesia, whenever there are social uh, upheaval and the market goes down, Singapore picks up. <laughs> and where would that money comes from? Right, and right. if the society uh, provides such services, then uh, why are the benefits of those not equally distributed, however mm. sinful it might be? The right. Indonesians yeah, today are saying we want to claw back. Right. So that is go back even to the distribution, the lack of distribution, not just of the fruits of labor. Uh, ironically, the lack of distribution of fencing. <laughs> <laughs> In that sense, I suppose you might say we're not that far off from the Swiss model, except they do No, no, we, we, we are not far from yeah. it. In that sense, yeah, yeah, but yeah. not in the distribution. Yes, not in and, the distribution sense. And I don't uh, understand why, why uh, occasionally the opposition has to be on a defensive mm. to say that well, uh, vote for me uh, to be a voice in parliament mm. when you can say that, well, there is an alternative uh, uh, policy there. There's an alternative uh, a narrative as to how we want to deal with tomorrow and tomorrow is today. Mm. And, and that is a, still a distribution problem. Yeah, you really, this is a really interesting point um, that... Because we tend to think of, and the way the government has framed it is that, you know, people work and their savings become CPF and you get some interest on that. And that's what you get at the end of your life. But you're making a very good point that actually when we all work, we create surplus in the economy, right? Surplus capital that the government then takes away as reserves. But it was never the government making that. It was us workers creating that surplus capital. But instead of returning it to us as the fruits of our labor, uh, especially in our retirement years, they're hoarding it as reserves or using it for God knows what because there's no transparency. And they're only giving us our own savings plus uh, a, a, a low interest rate on top of it. And nowadays, you can't even get all your CPF right. back. And, and, so, all, yeah. yes. and all the fruits that the, we have as reflected in the reserve is due to that political stability which would not become uh, which would not be there unless the people had agreed to it so right. that so for for good behavior <laughs> <laughs> no no that yeah, entitlement yeah. and yeah, that is the yeah. good behavior that resulted in that reserve not because you have smart uh, uh, phd's and so on who are mm who are uh, in, in government. Right. Uh, and that, that is my point. Why can't we be more proactive towards 
achieving that Swiss lifestyle today yeah. for all, if not at least for those who are uh, in retirement. Okay, so since you brought it up, uh, let's let's take a slight detour. What would you do as the opposition? You're saying you should. This is the point that you should make to people. But do you feel like, you know, uh, that it's it's maybe too subtle a point to communicate in a in a election? You look at elections around the world; they're so direct, right? Uh, politicians are all about promising. This is what I can do for you today and tomorrow. But the point you're making. You know, could anyone in an electoral campaign really sort of make this subtle long-term point about um, the fruits of our labor and surplus capital over the course of generations? How should opposition politicians okay, or opposition it, parties? It's not practice? a long-term point. Yeah, it is. We can. We have that much. Okay, Liang uh, Siyan mentioned the figure of uh, 1.3 trillion. Uh, I believe he had published it. That was not a challenge. He mentioned the figure of uh, 59 billion, which is just the interest on that 1.3 billion. Now, with that sort of money, one can have a slogan that actually everyone can enjoy free health service, free health service without. Having to make a hue and cry within the family whenever someone is unfortunate enough uh, to contract some critical diseases. I mean, I live here, and I always talk to uh, uh, many of my Singapore friends who probably are more well off than I, and uh, they still worry about what happened if someone is sick. What happened if? Uh, yeah. Uh, you contract, and I don't understand why they should uh, despair over that. When, say, for example, I pay uh, whether I pay my taxes or not, I don't have any worry if yeah. I should I be struck down with some critical illness. I have friends who had uh, cancer and so on. They are, they are whether they are well to do or not well to do. None of them ever worry about having to pay for the medication yeah. or having. To pay uh, for hospi- hospital treatment, and that is unnecessary. And I think that can be summed up in a few strong catchphrase, which are realizable, realizable within a parliament, realizable immediately. Mm. And and I think that it is the fear. Singapore BAP have built up this myth that this. Asset must not be touched. Mm, yeah, and yeah. and why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they're happy to touch it. You know, when they need to, like the Pioneer Generation package after the 2011 election. Suddenly, overnight, what was it? Eight eight million? Or was it eight? How much was it? Eight billion withdrawn. Yes. Eight, I think it was eight billion withdrawn mm. from our re- reserves to you know uh, spread over four years for anyone above the age of 65. They just took this money and threw it. At uh, you know the the older older voters, I mean, if they can do that, right? We surely there's a lot more that we can consider doing with that money, starting with some transparency at least over how much of that. True, money. is, is yeah. that mindset that we cannot exceed the lines which are drawn by the PAP, and yeah. while they keep redrawing the lines, we just accept that oh they must uh, know their facts, and, and this is. 
this is a very unfortunate situation of Singapore when you have a population which probably, uh, as what they say, has the highest uh, uh, intelligence uh, in the world or children and so on, and yet people are prepared just to accept policies based on myth mm. ra rather yeah. than uh, on facts. And well, I gave this talk last night, and one yeah. of the things I make, actually in every talk I make, is that because there's no transparency, no freedom of information, right. that all information is classified unless specifically declassified, right? That the government only releases statistics that it, it wants us to see. And then international statistics come from the government as well. World Bank numbers, for example, come from the Singapore government. And then the Singapore government cites World Bank numbers as proof that it's doing so well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's from the Singapore government, right? So we actually have no way of independently verifying so many things that the government claims. Um, and we are so limited in, how we, in what we know and how we understand it because there's just no transparency. And this, and this then empowers the PAP to simply set the terms of um, all the debates because they can just come in with a set of facts that already support their position and everyone else only can deal with those set of facts. We have no other way of knowing what is true and or not true. True. And, and for the opposition, uh, it is the ability to identify, uh, and I don't think it's difficult to identify, the uh, the squeeze middle class, the population which are squeezed, and you are squeezed when you have to worry about your illness. Yeah. You are squeezed if you come to the end of your professional life. And increasingly, one could come to the end of one's professional life by the time you are in the mid-40s due to technological changes uh, and so on. And is to capture... Uh, the aspiration of this group, whereas uh, it's true this group are so much subject to fear and subject to the propaganda of the PAP that uh, 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 their insecurity makes them cling on to the PAP as though there are no other ways to relieve them uh, of the pain, the pain of having to live uh, your pension years or, or your retirement years without a secure income to look after your health. That should never be there. Your fear that you have to yeah. look after your parents and your children. That yeah. should never be there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I think we we've we've uh, <laughs> this has been a really interesting detour. Can we just come Okay back? that that although it's okay. a deviation, it is for me, yeah. it's how I use my my stay in the UK over uh, the few decades mm -hmm. uh, to be able to contribute to that process in Singapore because uh, what we see in Singapore, what you guys see in Singapore as the restrictions imposed uh, by the government, from my personal experiences in the UK, I can say that none of these are, uh, none of those constraints are necessary, uh, and that that is where the past and the future for mm. me uh, is intertwined, right. and also my period in exile. Right. Okay. Um, so, 
just just one question that I I've, I've had actually is, uh, you you chose architecture because it was the longest course, and for no other reason. Did you yes, actually? That, that that was the a very good reason, uh, because I mean, for some reason it never occurred to me that the uh, having a prof uh, having a life to. Okay, put it put it another way. Most people, when they go to university, will look in terms of career. What they look in terms of career, you have to find a means to support yourself and to earn good money. That is the most mercenary uh, approach. Whereas for me, I always think that well, uh, that is never a consideration. That was never considered. I don't come from a rich family. Uh, although university tuition fees were at that time seven hundred. Sing dollar. Uh, there were no student grants that we have uh, uh, in the UK. Um, I was giving tuition to support myself, but mm. I wanted a, to be able to remain in university for as long as possible because I need time to think about issues, to work out uh, uh, some solutions to problems that I see around me. Although I'm not sure where to find that information. But there's no rush for me to go to work. Right, right. <laughs> I see. And the the problems when you say the problems around you, the ones you were talking about earlier. Oh yes. Yes. Okay. And, and don't forget that uh, we were only ten years after independence, and I can simple thing I can see issues of inequality and so yeah. on. As I mentioned, employment law. Those are things that worries me. And architecture was good because, as it turned out, was good because. In architect in architecture, we plan for the future. You don't build a house for the next ten years. You build a house to be able to stand up for the next hundred years. Mm. You you whatever you build, you transform the community around you. So question of high rise and so on. As I went through my first year, then it became more interesting, more political. Although I must say, after my second year. Um, Given my trend of thinking, I wrote to Tomiko to apply for uh, a transfer to law. He accepted me, but To Chinchai then uh, vetoed. What? <laughs> so wait, this is just okay. So just just to clarify, uh, you went into university what sixty eight, sixty nine? I think seventy or seventy one. Seventy seventy one. So it was yes. five years after separation uh, from Malaysia. But for independence was and independence uh, was sixty three. Independence from you, the UK was sixty three. Yes. Separation was sixty five. Right. Uh, so you went in around seventy, right? Yes. Just after all these laws that we talked about and all these protests, Vietnam War. Um, but you, you, there was no problem with you going in. But by the end of your first year, I mean, To Chin Chai vetoes second but, year, right? second, second year. year. Yes, does he veto because? Of what you've oh, been oh, up to? Uh, no, the, no, no, no. Yeah. Vito oh. uh, on the basis that well, we have invested in uh, uh, in your education in architecture, right? Yeah, yeah it's okay. a kind of a mercenary uh, mm. <laughs> approach towards. <laughs> but you you've paid fees. I mean, oh yeah, you paid the fees, yeah, but so then of course they will argue that fees are subsidized. It's right. a privilege to be there, and you better okay. <laughs> stick to it. 
but you you're like what 20 22 years old at oh, this yeah. point it's not like you're supposed to know what you want to do for the rest of your life but yeah okay i, can, I mean i can see how he would think that way and the pap government then would think that way uh so you're this by this time it's about 72 73 but are you then active in student politics already uh only in architecture at the time and uh we were uh we were fortunate to have a very good group of uh students in our year good group of students in that somehow we have a strong uh concern about society and, and that uh in a way was helped by one of our uh, a, a lecturer who uh, passed away a few years ago, uh, Mr. Tom Bing Win, and uh, his approach to teaching of architecture was uh, to make uh, everyone conscious of uh, what you are planning for. And right. so a structural analysis of society uh, was engaged, uh, social surveys were conducted in places like uh, Jurong and so on. And that was how then I got involved with the workers. <laughs> right. Yes. So the course itself provided me with the opportunity to further engage in society. And, and not just me personally, my class. So at the end, my class of 19 students, I think uh, that was the biggest loss for the university. About six were deported one way or another. Oh, wow. <laughs> but did your lecturer then get in any trouble for uh, fostering No, no, by then thing? he left. He, he, oh, he, 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 no, he, he left earlier before we became uh, fairly radical. And, uh, many of them then ended up in the student movement at the uh, university, at the main campus in Bukit Timah. Right, right. Yes. Okay. So from there, you grow more active in this student politics? Yes, because in my architecture school, uh, someone probably one day will be writing a story about our years in architecture where we were involved even in the boycott of classes and so on mm -hmm. because we were uh, uh, fed up with favoritism and so on, practiced by some of the senior lecturers. So it, it, it was uh, a fairly engaging time. And again, we were, it was a fairly engaging time because intellectually, uh, architecture was going through, uh, this internationally, uh, a great deal of rethinking about people's architecture, people's movement, uh, and so on. And uh, in a very lucky way, uh, we were able uh, to catch on to those intellectual process that uh, uh, was that, that was uh, being experienced elsewhere. So, um, what made you then, you know, want to run for the presidency of the student union? Oh, there yeah. there was a there was an upheaval at the uh, at the University of Singapore Students Union at the time and. All along, the university student union was involved in petty, uh, you know, end of the year ball and so on. Uh, there was an occasion where there was some, I can't remember the details of those 
personal squabbles that came to the open. Um, so some of us were in the architecture school, went to attend the emergency general meeting. Then we set out our line that the student union, uh, we are privileged as students, we have a duty to society, we are going to make the student union a bastion for the struggle of democracy and so to make it relevant to the people because we were uh, 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 we were in a privileged position, we are privileged position because we are subsidized by the taxpayer, so we are giving back to society. Uh, so that was a radical call to arms and uh, interestingly, uh, we got a lot of support because don't forget, at that time, Singapore was politically sterile. And before I got elected, um, I was then the vice president. So I think Juliet Chin at the time was the uh, acting president or the president. Oh, right. So uh, I gave a speech at the National Theatre. That is oh, at, wow. um, that is at uh, somewhere, somewhere in the centre of Singapore. For the for to welcome the freshies, and uh, I represented the student union then as a vice uh, president. That was when uh, I first cross sword with To Chin Chai. Right. Instead of wearing uh, a suit and tie, I wore a batik shirt. Instead of addressing the students as ladies and gentlemen, I addressed them as boys and girls. Now, don't forget Toh Chin Chai was the president, uh, was the chairman of the PAP at the same time. Yeah, and chancellor of the university. Chancellor yeah. of the university. He read my opening remark as a declaration of war. <laughs> as a declaration of war because I was breaking the norm. That was very important. That was very important. After my speech, he came up uh, to the microphone he took out his jacket and said, that doesn't make me your brother or your sister. <laughs> and uh, in my speech, uh, for first time, I raised the question of political detainees. Oh, okay. Okay, that's that a pretty good <laughs> line right there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that, if you put in the context of Singapore, at that time, I think that was 73. That was 10 years after independence. Mm -hmm. 10 years after Ten years people after were detained. Well, yeah. yes. And nobody talks about it in the open. Yeah. And it was at the National Theatre before the new wow. students. Oh, man. Wow. Uh, so now, now you understand, yeah, now I understand. How, how, how I continue to be uh, demonized. <laughs> Uh, by the system. And that was before I was elected as the president. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes. So even before that, you were already... Wait, but then if you, that was before you were elected president, why were you giving the speech? Uh, because Juliet Chin was a Malaysian and uh, she's also, she was also my classmate in architecture. Yeah. Okay. It was also my... And uh, for whatever uh, reason, but my colleagues all knew what I was going to talk about. Right, so so Juliet, you're saying Juliet couldn't give the speech because she was Malaysian. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. I uh, I, I can't remember Sorry. the context, but okay, I uh, I stand corrected. But 
I think it was thought probably more prudent for that speech to be given by a Singaporean. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay, so she, it was a speech that she, you co-authored with her or something? Or? Uh, no, no, I, I wrote the speech. Okay. But my, uh, I mean, my 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 friends uh, at architecture knew my line of thinking. Right. So uh, it would not be just, hey, welcome to... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. And on the back of that speech and then the sort of uh, events at the Students' Union, you get elected president. And I, I, I mean, I can assume Toh Chin Chai is not happy with that development because you're pledging to take the Students' Union in a much more active, radical oh, direction. Oh, we were. And my, the, the campaign slogan was to something like uh, think, think and act. So we were, we were uh, putting social content and democracy as uh, the, the manifesto uh, uh, of our campaign. Right. And for that reason, a whole, a good batch of people were then elected into the student council. Okay. And what did you plan to do, you know, as president? I know you didn't last very long. Oh, we didn't last very yeah. long. Uh, what did you plan? Uh, what we, were your plans? The basically uh, was to the, the the general idea was that the student union uh, was the only organization uh, where we are able to advocate politically. Now, it is important to understand that we had never used the word being political. We could go into uh, uh, using the word democracy as our aim. We avoid, and, and that is to a great extent semantics where we had to compromise with the constraints set by the regime. Remember Lee Kuan Yew would always say, if you are against us, form a political party. If you want to talk about politics, join the Democratic Socialist Party. And the Students' Union or any other organization, uh, civic organization, must be constrained to very narrow limits. So for that reason, we are always living a lie. I, mean, I, I can say after so many decades that we were living a lie because, yes, uh, at least I, am, uh, I was political, political in the sense that I uh, saw the Student Union as the only organization where we have space, we have money, because we are getting X percentage of uh, 1% or half a percent of student fees. We even have an employee, we have an office building, we have, um, <laughs> we wow. have van. Yeah. So, which organization in Singapore in 73 have that? Yeah. Not the workers' part. No. Yeah. At that time, was a, a poor JB Jaratnam was a one-man show. And the yeah. other politicians were all uh, uh, in, in prison. Yeah. So, we have that privilege. So, when you ask me the question, what I wanted to do, it was basically to deepen the democratic process. How we deepen the democratic process? Uh, very quickly, I realized that although I raised the question of political 
detainee, we probably had organized some display. Mm -hmm. We invited one of the political uh, family of political detainees to come to our campus to give the talks. These are the intellectual part within the campus. Then we wanted to go out to the campus. And one of the ventures that we went out to the campus was to go to Jurong. Right. And Jurong was the area where I later got arrested. Right. Uh, because, and I was able to get to Jurong because in between I took a gap year where I spent uh -huh. a year in Jurong. And I got involved uh, with, the, uh, with an organization called Jurong Industrial Mission, yeah. of which my wife was then the director. By the time I got to, got, uh, to know them, their organization were already being, uh, already came under attack because they were supported by ecumenical churches and so on. Yeah. Yes. And, but, uh, so I spent eventually a year with them all doing voluntary work. And uh, oh, okay. it, it would be almost equivalent to the Geelang Center, except that we were just uh, volunteers, people like Vincent Cheng, uh, 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 Paul Lim. These are the names that you hear in 1987, Operation Spectrum. And they were then working uh, with my wife, so I spent a year there before I went back to the university and later uh, became the president. So uh, with that background, I was able uh, to take the uh, uh, to use the student union as the space to help workers uh, who were then subject uh, to a great deal of oppression by the trade union. Don't forget, okay, economically, 1970, that was 73, was also part of the world recession where many people right. would re retrench. Right, and right. So see. again, when you say, what did I want to do? Uh, those were the things I was able to do. Right, organize to the workers, help yes. them, you know, fight for their rights. And, and, and that is linked, yeah. that is linked to that political vacuum in Singapore mm -hmm. where no one else were able to do it. Mm. And... Yeah, I mean, yeah. as we mentioned, the trade unions were all but neutered by the end of the 60s. Yes. So who is advocating for workers? And yes, and in fact, what we were into. advocating yeah. was to advocate workers to take over their own union, the union, and that is where Fei Yukok came in. Oh, right. So what okay. we were attacking was, uh, what we were advocating was to get workers to confront their own union. Right. And yeah. we were offering our facilities at the Bukit Timah campus. You have no place to meet. Come, mm. we'll give you a room. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Oh, that's ironic. The I don't know if you know this, but the when the PAP started, it didn't have any of these things itself. So where did it meet? It met in the offices of the Singapore Factory and Shop Workers Union on oh, Middle yes. Road. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So you know, yes. it was a trade so union that gave, gave them that. For, for them. Yeah. Because by the time I went to university, I knew already that they had captured the trade union. Mm -hmm. uh, at least my consciousness was such that I knew they had used People's Association as part of the party institution. Yeah. They have captured the state. Yeah. And, yeah. and that is where I say that the trade union is the only bastion that we could 
use in the same way uh, like Philippines University is a sanctuary yes uh, yeah. uh, for for those who are against the establishment okay so then let's come to 1974 I think it was November 1974 was it that uh, oh, yes. the <laughs> events happened and you were October accused. October yeah, October uh, could you in your own words I guess especially for audience who've you know never heard of any of this tell us what happened okay the <coughs> The context was this, that um, at the time, in '74, there was a, the economic recession and so on. Factories, one of the factories in Jurong, the American Marine Factory, were retrenching the workers. The trade union, which was then PIEU, which was uh, controlled by the PAP, they were in cohort with the management. One very specific issue was that the factory was paying workers with trade union vouchers issued by the trade union PIEU. That's um, Pioneer Industries, Industries Employees, Employees Union. Union. Right. That, I found out, was illegal because mm -hmm. wages had to be paid in cash and not in kind. Right. And this is where the how as students we are able to use our research to help the workers. Yeah. So we tell the workers that look, that is the information. Go to the, your union and confront them to say why that is so. Mm -hmm. The union fixed a meeting. We were there. So at that meeting, Fei Yukok attended. That was, I think, on the 23rd of October. Never mind right. the details. 23rd of October. And we posed to Fei Yu Kong that can you explain why they are paid with trade union vouchers, which is illegal. Uh, just to get, who is Fei Yu Kong? Okay, Fei Yu Kong was the president of the Pioneers Industry right. Employees Union or Secretary General. He was also assistant to David Nair. Right. And Fei Yukok was the man Lee Kuan Yew put into the trade union movement to control the Chinese speaking right. uh, okay. workers. And of course, David Nair then was head of NTUC. Yeah, head of yes. NTUC. And Fei Yukok was also a PAP MP at the time. Right. Uh, he probably, yeah, he was a. Uh, now, so. We confronted Fei Yukok. Fei Yukok said, come back a week later, mm, okay. where, which was then the 30th of October, which the workers all uh, went back to the trade union. And that was when I think there were at least about 100 workers there. Uh, I happened, not I happened, I was there, but we kept a distance away. In fact, I was advised by my colleagues and so on, that I should not attend. But anyway, we were distance away. Fei Yukok didn't turn up for that meeting. It was in daytime. In the daytime, he didn't turn up. There was a big commotion in the trade union premises. Nobody knew what. Few days later, I was arrested for rioting. What rioting? They then claimed that a riot took place inside trade union premises. Uh, I was charged. Two other workers were charged. 
we went to court. And during the trial, a Straits Times uh, journalist told the judge that he saw me at the hawker centre at the time when he heard all the noise in the trade union. The judge said, you lied, but I did not know why you lied. He's a Straits Times journalist. Huh. Uh, two female workers were photographed coming out of the trade union immediately after the commotion. They came to court. They came to the court to say they happened to be inside the trade union for some other trade union ministers. Then they heard all this commotion and saw trade union leaders, including a person by the name of Lawrence Quack, overturning tables and so on. Mm. And they came out. The judge uh, didn't believe the two workers. We had photograph of them coming out. Right. And they also did they also... Uh Talk about whether you were involved? Oh yes, they didn't see me at all. They okay. saw they saw the riot being started, the smashing the, of tables. Yeah, quote unquote, yeah, riot, but yeah. yes. And they and they said you weren't in uh, there, right? Then we had two workers for American Marine who were supposed to be the witnesses for the prosecution. They came to court and told uh, uh, the judge that they were trained, they were primed to give evidence against me huh. and the two workers. <laughs> and, and, these, and these are people who came <laughs> to court to tell the truth. So that was a biggest frame-up ever. Yeah. And uh, uh, G. Raman, very boldly in his book and also in the foreword to the book that uh, uh, we published, mentioned that it was a frame up uh, from beginning to end and he described it as uh, the one of the black dot in Singapore legal uh, judicial history. So why the frame up? And the frame up was that by then we were in the student union for about three to four months and uh, someone higher up realized that a stop had to be put right. to what was happening. Uh, that's why during the trial, I had originally instructed the Queen's Counsel, uh, John Platzmill, uh, who QC, who was the, uh, the top British QC linked to D.N. Preet, who was involved uh, in the Fajar trial. Mm -hmm. He agreed to represent me in court, but the judge Sinaturi refused mm. uh, on the grounds that he must appear by, the, by Monday. And that is not how uh, the legal system works. So, fine, I represented myself. So that trial then dragged on for 47 uh, days. It became truly uh, an eye-opening event. I have no regret. Uh, of representing myself uh, because without the constraints which would otherwise be imposed on lawyers, uh, I could uh, do more than what a lawyer yeah. could in exposing what happened yeah. uh, uh, throughout that process. Yeah, well, stitch up, you were going to lose anyway, no matter what you did. You might as well. Yes, you know, and, and that's why when I was convicted, I uh, uh, congratulated Judge Nature for his future promotion. To the <laughs> 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 I, 
God, which actually happened. But for that, he threatened to put me. No, in fact, he sent me down immediately to the cell. And he said he will consider me for contempt, which he did and said that, well, uh, uh, he wouldn't, but he sent me uh, to imprisonment for, for a year. And that, that is... That was the Singapore then, and I think that is the Singapore now. <laughs> everything uh, was a stitch up then. Everything is still a stitch up now. Now, of course, Fei Yu Kok quite famously uh, was convicted in 2016 for for theft, was it? And he yes, recanted some right. of his yes. testimony yes. or something like that. And uh, that was a few years ago. He was sentenced to, I think, three to five years. And immediately after the conviction, I wrote to the Attorney General because when he pleaded guilty to 28 charges, the, uh, the, the, the judge, when sentenced him, made the remark that he had over a period from 1973 to 79 uh, part of the allegation was that he put his finger into the trade union's pie, that he was stealing money and have the audacity to get those under him to give false evidence. Oh, now, man. 73 was important because that was when the period, the material period where we were accusing him that of being involved in illegal activities of getting trade uh, management to pay workers by trade union vouchers. We didn't know that at that time he was stealing money from the trade union. And the trade union, where would the trade union have money? Mm. But trade union supermarkets have money. Yeah. How would those vouchers be paid? back to the trade union, money must have changed hand. Right. And I think that that was where there was a nexus between the frame-up against me and that Fei Yukok was the first prosecution witness right. against me. And unfortunately, the Attorney, Gen uh, the Attorney General, uh, uh, in his reply, basically says that Feiyukok was not involved with my trial. <laughs> when, when he was a first witness? <laughs> when he was, he was a, yeah. a prosecution witness. He said he was not involved with the riot. It's true. On the day of the riot, he was not there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, I it, mean, it's, although it's, you it's, might say it, the fact that he didn't show up is probably why the riot broke true, out because true. you had some really angry workers. <laughs> well, oh, that, that, is, that is the, the stitch up. Yeah. So you went straight to jail then? And I went straight to jail. It was a relief because I was extremely tired by then. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, <laughs> yes. And, um, I mean, I had six hours in front of Shamugam. You had 47 days in court. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how you... And you were representing yourself as well. Uh, no, no, no. But 47, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was tiring. I was I mean, in yeah. control. Yeah. <laughs> So, and that was a year you were in jail? I was in jail uh, after remission for eight months. Okay. And um, while I was in prison, two things happened. One was the 
the head of school of architecture came to see me and I was surprised. He came with an envelope. Then he says that you are going to sit for exam. <laughs> I told him, please don't bother to open it. I'm not going <laughs> to take any exam because uh, firstly, there was actually no exam in architecture throughout seven years. Secondly, it's that there was, there was no pre-notice and it was just another stitch up to ensure that they could formally expel me right. for the university for failing an exam. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that was one and that followed very swiftly by uh, notice that I was expelled from the university. Then the second was that the military came to inform me that I will be enlisted for national service. Uh, I will be called up at the very hour at 8 a.m. of my release from prison. Now, that clearly was unusual. And so that led to protests uh, at the campus and they managed to secure an agreement with the military that I only need to report uh, on the following Monday. I was supposed to be released on Friday. Right. And... Uh, on the very day of my release, I was rudely woken up from prison at 5 a.m. in the morning and told that I have to leave the prison now. Okay. <laughs> I said, I am not going to risk leaving the prison's gate and then only to be arrested for escape. Why would someone be released from prison at 5 a.m.? Yeah. And why? So they insisted... And I say that, okay, in which case, you have to drive me home, which they did. Okay. And after they drove me home, I got my girlfriend, who is now my wife, uh, to come uh, uh, to my home at Juchet and uh, drive me back to the prison. Okay. And why? Because the students were organizing a welcome uh, <laughs> uh, hey. Oh, okay, okay. So maybe that's what they wanted uh, to do. They precisely, wanted to avoid the, yeah. Precisely. And yeah. uh, uh, one of the person who actually turned up at the prison on a motorbike was, guess who? Ho Kong Ping. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> he was then still yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. radical. He was writing yes. for the Firestone uh, Economic yeah. Review. Right. So that, that was how the way things are managed, news are managed in Singapore. They don't yeah. want a, uh, an image of me walking out of the prison. Yeah. They don't want the student, but the student uh, not realizing that I was out all lined up uh, yeah. to welcome me. So at least... Uh, <laughs> and then you showed not up from the opposite them. direction. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that was that. And um, immediately after my release from... Uh, uh, prison I had three days and that was when upon advice of friends and so on it was time for me to leave Singapore so I went into hiding and despite how well controlled Singapore was uh, they were unable to track me down until eventually I surfaced in London Okay, so you were released from prison on a Friday and you were supposed to report for NS on the Monday but somehow in between that, you got out of the country and went to the UK. 
Can you tell us how that happened? I, I can't imagine that happening in Singapore today, but you somehow... <laughs> right. Okay. So I had a gap of three days to do my disappearing act. Um, the moment I was released from uh, prison, having returned back to the prison, then I made my way to Bukit Timah campus where a rally was organized and I gave uh, a talk there at the, at the campus. Now, that was Friday by then, Friday afternoon. Uh, make arrangement to see my uh, lawyer, G. Raman, on a Sunday. For some good reason, I did not turn up because I needed to go into hiding. And somehow, the... The authorities were, uh, however incompetent they claim uh, to be, was unable to track me down and I was able to... Uh, at that time, I was fortunate to have massive support, literally massive support in Singapore, not just among my immediate friends and so on. You have uh, the church who were also... Uh, supporting me without my knowing many people were uh, arranging for me either to go to United States to go to the to go to Australia uh, uh, basically to go wherever uh, I wanted to seek refuge uh, meanwhile I had to go into hiding which I did and uh, good friends of mine whom the government later very much later on uh, uh, arrested uh, at least one of them who was instrumental in arranging uh, for for a hiding place in a very nice part of uh, uh, of a neighborhood in uh, where was where is that place um, start with S in Singapore. Not not Sentosa? No, not uh, Sentosa. On the mainland. Something like uh, Salamban or not Salamban. Salamban is Salamban. <laughs> anyway. Uh, some somewhere uh in Singapore in a bungalow. Uh I only live Siglap? No, not Siglap. No. Yeah. Anyway, oh when I remember I'll tell you. Um <laughs> uh, and so we, uh, I was able to stay there for a good uh, six months with my uh, girlfriend, Bing Lan, at the time staying with me. Uh, another uh, very good friend, the late Cheng Mingke, who was going in and out of the house as though he uh, uh, was, as though it was a couple. So nobody in the neighborhood knew that I was hiding there for six months. They only see daily a gentleman uh, leaving the place and uh, Bing Lan occasionally going out to do the shopping. So the first problem was to get out of Singapore and what's the best way to get out of Singapore except uh, to go uh, by boat or a small sampan and someone arranged for that. Uh, this uh, very brave man, uh, Ting Ling, who later had to confess and did 
mention that so it's nothing uh, uh, it's no longer uh, a secret it was in the public domain he he helped with renting the property someone arranged for sampan for me to go over to uh, Malaysia and from Malaysia in order to make my way uh, eventually to Thailand and to leave uh, Thailand I need a passport and that is where for the last donkey years the Singapore government had uh, been accusing me of forging uh, forging a stamp on the passport what is the stamp that needs to be forged? It was uh, that the passport need to be renewed because it had expired by then. Now, I did not personally uh, uh, get that uh, renewed because I was in hiding. But as I say, we had uh, lots of friends uh, who are either extremely creative or well-connected. So the passport was indeed extended. Was indeed extended. Whether it was extended by an officer in the immigration department uh, or it was as a result of a forged stamp that I do not know. And there was no need for me to know because I <coughs> went through the Thai uh, airport without any problem and uh, having landed in Amsterdam uh, with that passport without any problem and even entered UK. But Singapore government did lodge a complaint uh, to London, to the British High Commissioner in Singapore that they should charge me uh, for using a forged document. But the British say that we don't find anything, any, we have no legal problem with Mr. Tan being in London. Now, that is the whole point and the bankruptcy of the Singapore government. Not understanding that if someone is granted political asylum, the presumption is that that person must have left the country either surreptitiously or illegally. And having using a forged passport itself does not constitute a crime, especially when you are fleeing the country to seek asylum. And that is uh, uh, the, the bankruptcy of the Singapore government that on various occasions had tried to extradite me uh, and failed. Now, to get uh, one's passport Forge is not an impossible task or to forge a, uh, a, a stamp for renewal of one's passport is not uh, such a great difficulty. Not, not too exciting intrigue, I'm afraid. No, no, no. Yeah. That, is, that is really exciting because now I'm wondering who on the inside like, you know, helped you do this, right? Because we tend to think of the PAP as this monolithic, all-powerful government, but quite clearly, it sounds like, at least from, from what we know, from what you know, someone on the inside who had access to the genuine stamps or chops or whatever, extended, got the passport that, extended. That, that, that is 
uh, one of their eggs to grind against me. Because <laughs> by the fact that I was able to defy them, uh, not just uh, being elected president, and even, even when I went uh, to the Middle Temple, when I graduated from Balio, Lee Kuan Yew even wrote to the uh, to Middle Temple to object for me for my membership of the Middle Temple. If the Middle Temple uh, uh, had agreed, then I would not be able to join uh, the profession as a barrister, and that is the extent of how they felt that I had defied them. Mm. Besides being uh, uh, elected president beside going to Balio, leaving the country, becoming uh, a barrister, all these espies, uh, they are concerned uh, against uh, the norm. Yeah. The norm is that if you are bad, you should be barred from all these places <laughs> and bad according <laughs> to their definition. <laughs> Okay, so so just before we move, just for the record, right? Why did you choose to go in hiding and then flee the country? Oh, that's the uh, I have to leave the country because I don't see any possibility that uh, I could eventually be free to live in Singapore, uh, even if I had served national service, even if the fear of the students that something nasty would happen to me in the army. And even if those were speculation, it's for clear that they will put me out of circulation. Yeah. And going back to the first, my, my first narrative that at the time when I entered the university, that was a decade after uh, the independence and having defied the expectation that people of my generation would uh, support unreservedly the ruling party. I must be put out of circulation. And that, as you know today, uh, was not, not far off the mark, mm. uh, those worries yeah. that I had. And I don't see a point of remaining in Singapore if the end result is that I would be put out of circulation. By then, at least I knew that there were people who were detained without trial for 10 years. Yeah. And I'm someone yeah. whom the government knew that I would not negotiate with them. Yeah. And that is manifested by the fact that throughout the period of my involvement and in the persecution, they have not made any attempt to even try to persuade me or in, in, induce me with some softer option. Mm. And that is one thing that they got right about me. Yeah. That they can't get me to compromise. And to what extent they did so, a very good friend of mine, who one day probably will more openly uh, uh, admit, that he, when he was at the university, he was approached to, be, to spy on me. And such was uh, his commitment that he then decided to leave the course and fled Singapore. Right. And why? What was, what was it that they had a hold over him? He was a blue IC holder. Oh. And they blackmailed, using the family to blackmail him. 
right. that if he did not act as a spy, then they would uh, take action against the whole family. Wow. That's the way Singapore works. Yeah. And I didn't get to meet him until 20 years later. Oh, okay. Yeah, but he is now a very rich man in Malaysia <laughs> yeah. without, without a degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't need a degree yes. to get rich. No. <laughs> okay. Uh so you you when you fled to the UK, did you have any um sort of plans ahead of you? Like did, did people know you were coming or did you simply just because you had been in hiding, um, you know, have no connections here, or did your friends had already helped you? Oh right. You but know? when when I landed in uh, London in, in UK that was on the 30th of June 1976 by then two of my very good friends were deported from uh, Singapore and they were all my architecture classmates who were deported they are Malaysians they were deported on the day of my trial they were in London continuing with the final year of the architecture my case was well supported by the student union, Malaysian Students Union here. So, um, again, it was uh, well uh, organized. And later on, I will show you uh, uh, a letter written by Malcolm Cotwell. And that was in when I was still in prison, where he says that when he, when I, uh, do eventually turn up in UK, he will do his best to help. <laughs> now, that is the degree of support that wow. I uh, enjoy. And yeah. uh, likewise, my option really was whether to end up in London, uh, where there was a very strong student uh, network, or in Australia, where we also had a very strong solidarity network. The the president of the student union in Australia, the A, uh, uh, AUS, Australian Union of Students, the gentleman by the name of Neil McLean, uh, in fact, they had arranged for the student travel agency, which is a big travel agency for Australians with offices even in Kuala Lumpur, to issue me any ticket wherever I wanted to whenever wow. I turned up. Uh, that, that was wow. uh, uh, the period. So I was offered a place at Monash University at the time, uh, Mac, uh, uh, Mac, McGill University in the States, and Cornell, I believe. I think yeah. McGill's so, in Canada? Canada, yeah. Canada, yeah. Uh, and Cornell, um, Cornell right. at uh, the States. Some friends wow. were already arranging for yeah. that. And th that was the degree of support that we had at the time. Well, why do you suppose this is? Like, how did you get this level of support? Right, Because it's, it's quite startling to me just how much support you seem and to have. And the church, they, right. uh, they claimed that it was the communists who helped me and so on. <laughs> and uh, no, I, I don't deny that the, the, the communists was a political reality at the time they exist as an yeah, organization. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. And of course, uh, they will put uh, uh, their network to help if, uh, 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 if need be. But in fact, the most practical help was from uh, 
the church who paid for my air ticket, uh, I went to see the Council of Churches in Bangkok. The tickets were there for, uh, for me. Uh, there was a priest by the name of Reverend... Um, he, he had passed away. He's from Philadelphia who arranged for the air ticket for me uh, to go to, to Amsterdam and London. And that was arranged by the Council of Churches, uh, CAA. Uh, Bishop Yap, in his later years, admitted that he was involved in helping that. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so that is the degree yeah. of support that we, uh, we enjoy. Why are these people supporting me, who is a non-Christian? Yeah. And it's because of what we did at Singapore and uh, what we, the kind of help that we gave to the workers, as far as the church is concerned, fall within the remit of fighting for right. justice. And yeah. I mean, they see me as nothing less than just a victim of an oppressive system. Again, that's, you know, from someone who came of age post-1980s, uh, right? I mean, I was born 79, so I didn't really wasn't really conscious of the events of the 80s. but by, So by the time I became politically conscious, the church had been totally neutered in Singapore, all the yes, churches, right? Yes, so to think of the churches acting this way. And also, you know, based on what you're saying, these are different denominations working together. Yes, it's the precisely. council of churches all working together and, and to one, help you this and, way. And one Startling. person amazing. who was helping me was Olaf Palm of Sweden. Right. Yeah, he was then... Either uh, he was then in a foreign ministry already in uh, 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 Sweden. They had arranged a passport for me to collect at the Swedish embassy in Bangkok. But that was, that that would be to send me (laughs) to to, uh, Stockholm. But uh, I have no intention. To, to spend my exile in the cold. And, uh, I to, but I, I later <laughs> yeah. on uh, uh, went over to thank them. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that, that's the. And all these uh, people who are linked one way or another uh, with the church, including the World Council of Churches. Which, wow. And, and that is why at later days in 1987, where the part of the target was the church. Yeah, because it's the networking. Yeah, and this is where today they are talking about foreign intervention. Yeah, do you call this foreign intervention or expression of solidarity? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the whole foreign intervention thing is a lot of hypocrisy by the government. Because of yeah, course, yeah, of, of if course. you side with the government, they're happy for foreigners to intervene, sure, right? Of what is yes. foreign investment yes. but foreign intervention? Yes. Especially when the prime minister prime minister says, "Oh, we must tighten our belts, or foreigners won't want to come and invest in Singapore." I mean, we're supposed to have lower living standards so that foreigners can make more money. That doesn't make any sense. No, no. To that me. Is, as far as for them is concerned, yeah. in my case, it also demonstrates the danger of an independent uh, church that yeah. would live up to their uh, uh, moral tenets yeah. to give solidarity to people who are weak. When I was in uh, when I was, uh, after my arrest and during the trial, some churches were uh, 
were uh, were talking about people should not make false witness to your neighbor and mm. in that congregation <laughs> was one Edwin Neto mm. who uh, was a prosecution witness uh. from the trade union right. <laughs> 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 so so that connection uh in terms of why they were picking on the church and why they continue to do so is because the ruling party has the monopoly of control over space and over the propaganda machinery. And they must ensure that all these, every little institution, having captured the state, all other independent institution has to be under yeah. uh, uh, their immediate control, mm. if not under immediate threat yeah. <laughs> of being closed. Okay, so um, you end up in uh, the UK and then what brought you to Oxford and Balliol? Oh, that was... Uh, uh, I was helping out with the student movement here, Malaysian, Singaporeans. I had lots of support among Malaysians and why? And why were there lots of support for me among Malaysians? And in fact, Lee Kuan Yew in one of his speech says, for every one support I have in Singapore, I have seven supporters in Malaysia. And that is not without reason. Because during the period of my trial, my what happened in court was very well reported, not just in the Straits Times, to be fair, but also in the Chinese papers in Malaysia. Right. And uh, at least I know of some who were politicized over 70, 47 days period through reading the almost verbatim transcript of what happened as published in the newspaper. And one of them uh, today is quite an important uh, uh, community leader who came to study in London subsequently. And that was how he became a student activist after going through, after reading my transcript in, uh, in Malaysia when he was in O and A level. And that uh, that it's that uh, commonality of social experiences between Singaporeans and Malaysia, because we have the same legal system and so on, whatever oppression happens in one part uh, of Malaysia or in Singapore is very much reflected also in their own system. So that identification uh, was there. So for the uh, early period of my exile, I was involved in some publishing uh, business. I set up a typesetting uh, company and that was quite a good time because it was just the an interface period between type printing, typeface print, printing the old type and uh, uh, the emergence of personal computers. So there was that period where anyone who can produce uh, typeset work on this modern machine that costs quite a bit of money, then you can earn uh, a fairly good living. So I managed to go into that market for, uh, for quite a few years uh, before deciding 
after the birth of my son in 1983, I thought, yeah, it's time for me to go back uh, to my studies. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. So I was just picking up from what I uh, wanted to be in 1973. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you went up to Balliol then in 83. Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't realize uh, that you had worked in that gap between arriving in the UK and going to Balliol. Oh, right. But I was working on my own. Uh, I set up a company. When when did Bing Lang come and join you? Uh, Same. We we left at the same time, but she was she was able to travel with her own passport. Right. <laughs> but she, yeah, she managed to evade their radar. Right. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Okay. And then, so after getting the law degree, that's, then, that's basically when you... Yeah, then I joined the bar, yeah. uh, went to the middle temple, and then uh, because of one particular case where I uh, managed to prevent a Chinese person from being returned to Switzerland, where I argued that Switzerland was a not safe country for asylum seekers. Then I became very famous among uh, lots of uh, Chinese asylum seekers. And it, it came to a point where there are so many clients that I need to leave the bar to become a solicitor. Right. Because of the legal profession, that you yeah. cannot have direct access to to barrister. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, and I guess that that kind of uh, brings us to oh oh what. So since then, have you continued to be active in, um, you know, activism in in trying to change Singapore? Oh, only occasional talks and uh, uh, I mean, I I probably have met uh, more opposition uh, activists or leaders than an average Singaporean, ironically, while in exile. Because London is the centre of... uh, 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 things and uh, before we end the interview, one of the interesting uh, point that most people did not realize is that most people will might have heard that oh they have been uh, demonizing me as a rioter, student uh, union leader, uh, the Marxist conspiracy, and so on, and. At one point of time, Rajaratnam mentioned, and I, I couldn't uh, now put my finger on where it was published, either in the Straits Times or Firestone Economic Review, but he had a long rambling interview during which he accused me as uh, being an agent for the uh, Communist Party, the Japanese Red Army, KGB, MI6, CIA, a what? whole load a whole load <laughs> of agencies yeah. and and they they there is nothing that would stop them from demonizing someone that they against that they are against whether it's true or not yeah <laughs> yes. yes well you don't need to tell me <laughs> <laughs> okay and um 
what what next for for you? Like uh, you're retired now, mostly from your legal work. But what do you plan to do? Oh no, I do still uh, take uh, great interest in the uh, what happens in Singapore, and uh, whenever uh, possible, I uh, do meet up with friends or. Uh, younger activists uh, because many of them have this uh, ideological gap between uh, an, an aspiration to write what is wrong in Singapore and the ability uh, to analyze the situation because of the Facebook generation, many of them perceive activism as uh, at the level of the keyboard and uh, picking on issues which sound critical of the government uh, because it's convenient at times to criticize, but at times not really right to do so. And I give an example of, uh, for example, uh, a well-known activist who at one time was criticizing government on the basis that they have taken on too many foreign workers. It's only through her subsequent involvement with people abroad that they realized that she realized that part of her criticism based on xenophobia was wrong. Now, where would a person of that generation uh, acquire your basic analytical skill? And not necessarily uh, a student of political science would have that analytical skill as well. Things like worldview and so on. So these are, these are gaps. Uh, these are ideological gaps that especially important for Singapore activists. And, and this is where at times uh, when I do have the opportunity to speak uh, to them, especially at length, then it offers that opportunity to not so much uh, providing them with a tool of analysis, but to direct them to what they ought to know. To know what you do not know is very important. And that yeah. is that I find is very lacking among Singaporeans or for that matter, among many activists uh, in our area. And I do, uh, of late, take more interest in Southeast Asia and hence I was uh, involved for a very short period in helping with an organisation to develop democratic solidarity in the region. One question I actually get a lot from Singaporeans is how to actually you know what advice i would have for them as people who want to create change positive change in the country they feel helpless and frustrated right and they don't see how the system allows them to do anything because you get you you know the moment you you stand up and try and say something the government stomps down on you so would you have any advice for younger singaporeans or any singaporean really who wants to create change but is fearful i i i think uh, what I find it's uh, useful is having a group 
having a group of like-minded friends to discuss and to analyze. I started my political life in that manner. If on my own, I could have all sorts of ideas which may or may not be right. And on your own, you are not able to effect any real change unless there is an organization. And the magic number is always seven. <laughs> why, why seven? Well, uh, uh, first you need an odd number, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. three is too small to accommodate differences in ideas. Right. And you can have also personal uh, personality problems that come to crash and the whole group will break out. Uh, seven is just an easy number, uh, a right number of people to sit down anywhere around a table uh, to trash out ideas. And that, that is why you have Magnificent Seven, the Seven Samurai. There must be a reason seven behind dwarves. this. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and no, it's true. I see your point. I, see your point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from my own experience, starting up new narrative, you know, I, I can understand what you mean by having needing a certain number of people um, and seven being a good number. And yeah, yeah, I see your point there. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to get a table in the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but yeah. important thing is having a group. I mean, uh, uh, and that is where they are always afraid if you are organized, if you are yeah. if you have number. I mean, I know JB Jaratnam, uh, even in my university days, and so I know of him. Uh, met him but never really working relationship but in later years when I analyzed uh, him he was a very effective uh, 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 opposition leader but he lacks that seven yeah and that yeah. is where uh, we will end up having that same problem if everyone who has some critical ideas end up just on his own as a hero. Yeah. I was never, uh, some of my act may appear heroic, but I was never alone in any uh, phase of my life. Uh, be it from the point of time when I was, uh, when I went to Jurong, I have uh, uh, Bing Lan, I have mm -hmm. uh, 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 Vincent Cheng, I have uh, Paul Lim, and there are one or two other people. We, we, we are able to discuss when I was at university, of course, when I came to England, again, there's always a group uh, 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 around me. And I always ensure that actions are not an individual uh, heroic act. Uh, it's not a, uh, an ego trip. And unfortunately, we are uh, with social media and so on, we have that problem of uh, activists perceiving themselves uh, as the only as an institution. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think we are too many of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I totally I'm sure understand you know. that. Yeah, 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 and I think uh, that's why they also, uh, you know, de facto banned new narrative by denying our registration because oh, what they yes, were afraid yes. of, right, was not. Uh, us acting individually, um, but the fact that we were trying to build an organization with a clear manifesto, a platform for action that would organize people, right? I think that's... And, and we had some success with the select committee organizing yes. people oh, through yes. democracy classrooms to submit to 
the select committee just give their views. Uh, so I think you're right. Yeah, yeah and, and for that yeah. matter, that is the essence of Operation Spectrum. Yeah. That is the essence of why they needed to crack down on the student union. That is yeah. the reason why uh, you have February 2nd. Yeah. Yeah. Which for our audience is the anniversary of Cold Store, if you're wondering. <laughs> um, you got a lot of attention from your appearance in um, Pin Pin's movie uh, oh, documentary, yes, yes. Mm. and you know it seemed it, it seemed like it really a lot of people felt it was really tragic that so many people who loved Singapore simply cannot go home anymore, right? right. And you had that uh, evocative image of Joan Tai standing on the beach in mm. JB looking across to right. Singapore very sadly. And would you like to go home? Like oh, yes. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, that's my right to go back. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but not, uh, 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 not by way of any compromise. No, of course yeah. not. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So... Um, and uh, yeah. if you if you look at that uh, uh, picture, that is uh, a copy of my travel UN travel document as a refugee with the word uh, "valid for all countries except Singapore." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So all three of them are the UN travel documents. Yeah, yes, yes. Okay, yes, yes. different, different periods. Oh, and wow. one of the yeah. control system in Singapore is that as a foreigner, you are all foreigners are entitled to enter one way or another for a period of two weeks or whatever, and there is a proviso unless you were born in Singapore. Oh. So theoretically, if you are born in Singapore yeah. and you're holding a foreign passport, theoretically, you can be denied entry. Oh, Unlike okay. a foreigner who has no link to Singapore. Huh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> Man, that is insidious. Hmm. It's not, you know, it's like... It, it, you can't control where you're born, you know. It's not even something that you had any oh, choice yes, over. Of course, of so course. that's really unfair. Yes, you know, uh, I didn't choose to be born yes, in Singapore. Yes, as much as yes. I love Singapore, it's yes. my home, my family's there, I want to fight for it, but I didn't actually choose but to be all, born there. But if you look at Singapore laws, all laws are written in such a way, even commercial laws and so on, with always with small little provisos yeah. in case they intend to use it politically against anyone that yeah. applies to I'm sure uh, fake news law and all the other laws yeah one of the um, those provisos is, is simply exempting the government from its own laws oh, which yes, I think is yes. crazy because it undermines rule of law but sure. the privacy you know personal data protection whatever it's called does not apply to the government right. fake news law you know all, mm. all these laws that don't apply to the government right. how can we have rule of law if the government itself is not bound by the laws that makes no sense to me but that's how it is now <laughs> and I think there, Edwin Tong there, stood there, up in there government there you see my image and the yeah. <laughs> rule of law is in prison so thank you very much Wapiao from one man who's been accused by the Singapore government of being a foreign agent 
to another man who's been accused by the Singapore government of being a foreign agent. Let me say thank you for being on our podcast today and thank you for this interview and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, PJ, and all the best to narrative and to your future uh, work. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Tan Wapia. We'd like to thank Wapia very much for being on our show. If you'd like to learn more about his story and other political exiles, you can get the book Escape from the Lion's Paw, Reflections of Singapore's Political Exiles. There's a link from the New Narrative website. Please check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories on Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by joining New Narrative as a member at newnarrative.com. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all of you a great week ahead.